Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. Before we start, a quick housekeeping item. Uh, Vukasin Petrovic, who was supposed to be a, uh, uh, a respondent today, unfortunately was taken ill and uh, as a consequence won't be participating at today's, in today's forum. Um, instead, uh, France will uh, talk for a little longer than we, uh, than we uh, originally assumed, for roughly 35 to 40 minutes, um, after which um, we will have a Q&A and we expect to uh, finish perhaps a little earlier, maybe at uh, 1.15 or so. Um, with that, uh, allow me to introduce the subject of today's forum. It has been uh, 21 years since South, Africa trans South Africa's transition to a multiracial democracy. Uh, for much of that time, uh, the country enjoyed a largely positive media coverage and goodwill on the part of both domestic and international business community and ordinary people around the world. Yet, as the time passed, the bad news from South Africa became increasingly more difficult to ignore. First, uh, there was the Mbeki presidency, marked by anti-Western rhetoric, denial of the link between uh, HIV-AIDS and support uh, for the Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe, uh, prompting Michael Gerson of Washington Post uh, to refer to South Africa as a rogue democracy. Then came the Zuma presidency with its uh, seemingly endless corruption scandals, widespread electricity outages, and plunging business confidence, attempts to muzzle the media and quash the independence of the judiciary, protests and growing disorder that culminated in the Marikana massacre in 2012, during which the police gunned down 44 protesters. For years, the ANC has tried to dismiss criticism of its misrule as an attack on South Africa as a whole. That, I believe, says more about the ANC than about its critics. The ruling party has tried to bring all institutions of the state, not to mention vast parts of the civil society, under its thumb. As far as the ANC concerned, ANC is the state. Perhaps most shameless were those ANC defenders who argued that criticism of the ANC amounted to a criticism of the majority rule by disaffected whites. Well, times change. Dismay with the ANC is now a multiracial phenomenon, as it has always been. And to get a flavor of the political scene in South Africa today, please join me in watching a very short video from parliamentary proceedings uh, in the South African Parliament earlier this year. We have indeed allowed one powerful man to get away with too much for far too long. <laughs> Members, this honorable man is in our presence here today. 
Honorable President, in these very chambers, just five days ago, you broke parliament. Please understand, Honorable President, when I use the term honorable, I do it out of respect for the traditions and conventions of this august house. But please don't take it literally. For you, Honorable President, are not an honorable man. You're a broken man presiding of a broken society. See, you're willing to break every democratic institution to try and fix the legal predicament you find yourself in. You're willing to break this parliament if it means escaping accountability for the wrongs you have done. You see, on Thursday afternoon, outside this very house, members of parliament were being arrest arrested and assaulted by your riot police. A few hours later, inside this house, our freedom to communicate was violated by an order to jam the telecommunications network. Not long after that, armed police officers in plain shirts stormed into this sacred chamber and physically attacked members of this house. This was more than an assault on members of parliament. It was an assault on the very foundations of our democracy, honorable members. Parliament's constitutional obligation to fearlessly scrutinize and oversee the executive lost all meaning on Thursday night. In fact, the brute force of the state won and the hearts of our nation was broken. We knew at that very moment that our democratic order was in grave danger. But here's the question. What did you do, Mr. President? You laughed. You laughed while the people of South Africa cried for their beloved country. You laughed while trampling Madiba's legacy in the very week that we celebrated 25 years of his release. Honorable President, we will never, ever forgive you for what you did on that day. In our presence here today, Honorable You've President. Seen that already. <laughs> All right, good. So that's done then. Uh, Franz Cronier is the CEO of the um, South African Institute of Race Relations. Uh, the institute uh, was established in 1929 uh, and is a research and policy organization, uh, oldest in South Africa. Uh, the, the institute is not only the oldest. Um, uh, think tank in South Africa. It is also the oldest liberal um, institution in um, South Africa. It tries to be independent of government and of all political parties. It sees its role as serving its members and the country uh, at large um, to reach political and economic su success on the continent by promoting liberal democratic values, or as we would put it, classical liberalism. Uh, Franz uh, was educated at uh, St. John's College in Horten um, and the University of Edwardesrand and holds the PhD, a PhD in scenario planning from Northwest University. 
He joined the uh, Institute of Race Relations in 2004 and established its Center for Risk Analysis, which specializes in using scenarios to help business and government leaders make decisions about investment and policy in South Africa. He's also an associate of the Center for Innovative Leadership, a leading South Africa-based uh, scenario consultancy and the author of uh, A Time Traveler's Guide to Our Next 10 Years. His work has been widely cited in uh, the media from the Volksblatt to the uh, Wall Street Journal. He writes columns for the Report newspaper and MoneyWeb and is a regular contributor to Classic Business on uh, Classic FM. With that, uh, help me welcome Franz Cronier. Marion, thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is a great pleasure to come and talk to you this afternoon. The Economist newspaper says that South Africa is headed downhill. Are they right is the question that I am going to try and answer for you in the next 40 minutes or so. And I'm going to do that via a scenario exercise called the Time Traveller Scenarios that my institute released in South Africa about 18 months ago. And the Time Traveller Scenarios try and describe the steps and the trends and the processes that will take South Africa to its 2024 election. And if we pull this off at all here this afternoon, I leave you in 40 minutes with a reasonably clear description of South Africa, the way it looks when it wakes up, opens the curtains, looks out at the world, the morning after that election, now 10 years down the line. The story, as we wrote it, starts where it only possibly could in the South African economy. 1994 was the year of our democratic transition. Nelson Mandela comes to power as South Africa's first democratically elected leader. And in the subsequent 20 years, we have averaged levels of GDP growth of just over 3%. And considering where we came from, there's a measure of success in that number. But it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. What you are seeing over my, both my shoulders here is GDP growth performance in South Africa from the year 2000 projected by the Institute into the year 2019. The 3% growth that we've averaged over the whole period to, to today where we sit started relatively slowly coming out of the transition years as the African National Congress grew out of the debt and the very high interest rates they'd inherited from the Nats. By the early 2000s, things were looking fairly positive. Indeed, between the years 2004 and 2007, South Africa will exceed growth rates on average over those years of just over 5% of GDP. And those years, 2004 to 7, that growth rate is something you must keep in mind because we're going to revisit it again on a few occasions this afternoon. You can then see coming out of 2007, very obviously, the global financial crisis. The South African economy contracts by 1.5% in 2009. It bounces out of the crisis, appearing to recover into 2010 and 2011, and then the recovery stalls. GDP growth in South Africa now trapped in a band of somewhere between one5 and 2% of GDP, about a third, I will show you later, of the rate that South Africa needs to get out of political trouble. There are many things happening in this graphic. You see the financial crisis, but what you don't see 
and what explains the difficulty South Africa has in recovering economically out of the crisis, is that the same 2007, then 2008-9 period coincides with a significant political shift in the country. Nelson Mandela has been to Davos in 1991. He has come back saying that South Africa and his party should dump the Afro-socialism in which they were so heavily invested during the liberation years. By 1996, the South African government, in the terms of its gear or growth, employment and redistribution policy, has adopted what is actually a fairly conservative economic model. It argues the need to finance um, social spending, for example, through growth and not through borrowing. That would pass as controversial in parts of the West these days. That takes South Africa up to those relatively high growth rates. In 2007, though, there's a policy conference of the ruling party at Polokwane. Leftists within the South African government, remnants of the Communist Party that had been the engine of ideas in the liberation struggle, seize power by voting out South Africa's then, uh, then party leader, Thabo Mbeki, also head of state, who is forced to resign two years later. Subsequently, leftists within the South African government have seized control of the policy formulation function. The Economist newspaper, again a year ago, got it absolutely right when it quoted us on this, talking about the ominous trend to emerge from 2007 and quoting from an institute report as follows, a common thread through bills now introduced since 2007 is that they weaken property rights, reduce private sector autonomy, threaten business with draconian penalties and undermine investor confidence. That assessment is spot on. Getting out of this growth trap over my shoulder requires dealing with two problems. The first one is that the international economic environment is coming together in a way that will make a South African growth recovery, growth-led recovery more difficult. The second thing that needs to be overcome is very bad domestic, economic and other policy. I'm going to deal with both of those. We start with our argument on the global economy. This, these numbers will be familiar to you. Global economic growth expected to pick up 2012 to 2017 to about 3%, made possible by recovery in high income or advanced economies, Europe and the United States. But in terms of rates of growth, it is a story of developing economies who should be exceeding growth rates of 5% of GDP by 2017. Those developing economies in purchasing power terms are now 51% of global GDP. They overtook advanced economies over the past two or three years. The advanced economies, 49. To give you a sense of scale, Asia is at 25% of the world's GDP. The European Union and the United States both sit at uh, levels of uh, 16, 17, 18%. China in purchasing power terms overtook the US last year, of course, in absolute dollar terms. The United States is somewhat ahead. India, 6% of the world's economy. The Japanese, also 6 Sub-Saharan Africa, 2.5%. And <coughs> South Africa, 0.7%. To a very great extent, what happens in the South African economy will be determined by how we are swept along by the tides and currents that shape global economic performance. The story of growth, as it is predicted to unfold, is therefore a story largely of developing economies, but it is not growth that is spread equally across developing regions. It's essentially a story 
of East and South Asia, of China and India, predicted this year both to exceed growth rates of 6% of GDP. Developing Europe, sitting at about three, not much going on, Latin America, the Middle East at two and a half, Sub-Saharan Africa at four and a half percent. But only as long as you leave South Africa in. As soon as you strip South Africa out of Sub-Saharan Africa's numbers, it becomes the third region of the world, together with East and South Asia, to now be exceeding growth rates of just over 6% of GDP. Of course, before we take further steps into the scenarios, are we confident at all that what we see in the growth numbers and projections is accurate? And one of the concerns we ran across immediately is that brought out by the price of copper. The numbers, the years and along the bottom axis run from 2001 to 2015. You're looking at the copper price there in dollars per tonne. It picks up from 2001 into the financial crisis. It falls through the crisis. It appears to pick up again. And it's been stepping down for five years, sitting now at just over $6,300 a tonne, a number that was accurate on the London Metals Exchange yesterday. On top of the copper price, put global economic growth. And you can see why we like copper. Copper is one of the best lead indicators to indicate where the global economy is headed, much better than oil and gold that can be influenced by pumping decisions and risk appetite. What we see, therefore, is a falling copper price at the same time that that little orange growth line appears to tick upwards again. When we dealt with that challenge, we thought that it relates in the main not to the fact that global growth forecasts are necessarily off, but to what we see and what we know, you all know, is happening in China. 2012, growing at 8%. 2013, the same, stepping down into 2014, and the Chinese will engineer a growth rate of about 7%. This year, the real figure might very well be somewhat below that. And that's a trouble, that's a problem for South Africa, because that means that one of our great commodity export markets, and there's only one manufactured product now in South Africa's top 10 exports, the great market for those commodities is starting to slow. Its commodity demand will slow even faster if the Chinese start looking at driving their economy through internally driven consumption growth to a greater extent than might have been the case in the past 15 years. The euro area is staging a recovery, but there's serious question marks over that. And that's another, that's another problem for South Africa because of what you're seeing on the right-hand side of the graphic, our major export markets. China, 200 billion rands a year, including their uh, Hong Kong and a little bit of Japan, is our biggest export market. That's definitely going to slow, and commodity demand will slow even faster. Our second biggest export market is the European Union, and we've got question marks over the sustainability of that growth, what happens, for example, in the event of a Greek exit. The United States, a relatively small export market, South Africa now records, and this is a remarkable thing, trade deficits with every major economy and region of the world except for non-energy Africa and the United States of America. Africa is an export market considerable and will continue to remain one the rest of the world as well. The trouble for us is that as South Africa needs desperately to stage a growth recovery, two of our big export markets of serious question marks hanging over them. Our outlook on the currency, therefore, is as follows. The little yellow bar that you see is 1982, and I've chosen it because that's the last time 
The South African currency unit, the RAND, traded at one to the US dollar. By 1994, in the year of the transition, it was three and a half. Ten years later, in 2004, it is six. It has moved a decade later to the last blue bar, 2015. We think it will average 12 and a half this year. And in the current context, we think the RAND is on its way to trade at about 20 to the US dollar over time. The story on the RAND, the takeout story, is that it has lost between a half and two-thirds of its value every decade since the 1980s. And there's nothing in the current climate that we think is going to change that. You see that same RAND number again. I just put it here on the left side of what you're about to see to remind you of the RAND's weakening trajectory. There's a very curious relationship between currency weakness and the structure of South Africa's GDP. The years you're looking at are 1994 into 2015, so the whole democratic era. Despite what RAND weakness would have given agricultural exporters, agriculture's contribution to GDP is down from 5 to about 3%. It would have been 15% in the 1950s. The same is true of the mining sector. Despite global commodity booms that you would have seen in the mid to late 2000s and the weakening RAND over that period, mining's contribution to GDP is largely flat. The one that concerns us the most, this gray line, is manufacturing's contribution to GDP. It averaged about 25% from 1950 right through to the democratic transition in 1994. Subsequent 20 years, it's fallen by half to about 12%. In those three lines, you see the hostile impact that government policy in South Africa has had on three critical areas of the South African economy. The extent of that hostility is such that despite the huge benefit to exports that would have gained in the weakening round, their contribution to the country's economy is slipping. The last little line I show you here, it's not the entire economy to 100%, uh, but I've left out some sectors that aren't critical to my argument, is the high-skilled services sector, banking, finance, insurance, and information technology, now almost three times as important to the South African economy as mining and agriculture combined. We are emerging, evolving naturally over time to become a high-tech, high-skilled, post-industrial emerging market economy, and when I show you the skills base of the economy, you're going to see why that, while it obviously presents opportunities, positions South Africa to, to Africa as Hong Kong is to China, the skills base means that we are unlikely to make much headway there. In the absence of a growth recovery, don't think that the revenue base of the government can improve quickly. This is the story of the South African taxpayer. The population in South Africa is now about 55 million people. 33 million of those are adults over the age of 20. About half of those, of 15 million or so, have a job, including in the informal sector. Receiving monthly cash grants from the state, more people now than people in employment. Registered taxpayers, the number looks reasonably healthy, but that's an illusion because you have to register your employees now for income tax. Only 5 million people are liable to submit income tax returns, and just 10% of that number, 500,000, are earning the equivalent of $100,000 a year. That is the brittle nature of the income tax base. Without a turnaround in that tax base, South Africa's government runs into a number of fiscal constraints. 2005 to 2015, South Africa's projected budget deficit is to sit at around negative 4 to negative 5%. 
It cannot borrow its way out of trouble because of this line, the orange one. That's the country's debt to GDP ratio. On the last day that the apartheid government governed South Africa, that figure was 48%. In one of its great successes, the African National Congress government brings debt levels down to in the 20 percentiles. They pick up into the financial crisis here 2009, as you can see, subsequently they accelerate. And this year, debt levels will end again at uh, exactly the number they were on the eve of South Africa's democratic transition. The South African government cannot grow its way out of trouble. It cannot borrow its way out of trouble. I will show you in a moment that it cannot spend less either, meaning that this fiscal deficit is now the most powerful force acting on the government and will determine where it goes next. In terms of staging a growth recovery, there's some pretty formidable infrastructure constraints standing in the way, the most prominent of which is electricity supply constraints. The years are 1994 to 2024. We're measuring megawatts off the left-hand axis. And what I'm showing you, those gray bars, is available capacity. How many megawatts are available to consumers if they were to turn on the switch, whether they're a smelter or a household? and draw electricity. It's a number that currently sits at about 30,000, will pick up to 40,000 over the next decade. Is it going to be enough? The first problem we get to is the relationship between this available capacity and this blue line that we call installed capacity. The difference between the two is electricity generating capacity that's out of action for maintenance reasons, planned maintenance, but more often than not unplanned. We're assuming a differential here of 20% between what's installed and what's available to users. The worst day this year has been 38%, mainly as unplanned maintenance, in other words, breakdowns of energy infrastructure cause significant blackouts across the country. If demand for electricity increases at 1% per annum, which is the gray line that I show you over there, then indeed we do have enough surplus capacity of about 5,000 megawatts by 2024. But 1% demand growth for electricity corresponds with 2% economic growth, not enough to solve South Africa's social and economic problems. Let demand for electricity increase at 3% per annum. Why 3? Because that corresponds, you look at the rates of graph, of, of the lines, with a 2004 to 7 era, when South Africa hit 5% economic growth for the first time. At that rate of electricity demand, the shortfall will be close to 10,000 megawatts, the equivalent of two very large coal-fired power stations. What we're seeing here, therefore, is that you cannot now talk seriously about South Africa exceeding on a sustainable basis growth rates in excess of 3% of GDP. The risk is on the downside. If we see more breakdowns of infrastructure, which are happening at a, at a, at a rapid rate, you will have to push that growth ceiling of 3% downwards. That means at that level of growth, you cannot deal with the Achilles heel, which is South Africa's labor market. The population, the blue line bar is of 2001, and the orange bar is of last year, 2014. The population has increased from 45 to roughly 55 million people. I'll show you the exact numbers in a moment. The population of working age has increased by a similar quantum. The population with a job, however, has increased by very much less than the population of working age. And the population unemployed has increased by even less than the population that is employed. 
Where are people going? They're becoming discouraged work seekers. Young people not looking for work. The numbers as follows. Nine million is the population rise over this period. Eight million are of people joining the working age population. Only three million of that eight could find a job, including in the informal sector. One million became formally unemployed, meaning that they're still looking for work. But four million, half of new entrants, become young people not looking for jobs. It is a crisis of young people. You're looking here at South Africa's official unemployment rates by age group. This, uh, the first bracket along the bottom line there is people aged 15 to 24. The data is not skewed by school children, as we're only looking here at people actively looking for a job that cannot find one. That unemployment rate in that age bracket is 50%. For young black people, it is 60%. For young black women, it is a 70% number, an astonishing number. As people get older, they appear to find work, but that is, is, is not the case. These are people that have always had jobs and have simply hung on to them. Without a growth recovery in South Africa, that 50% unemployment figure becomes a bubble that will drift through other age groups as we move through decades. It is a globally unique circumstance. Spain and Greece can compete with us on this, very few other countries. We are home today, that little red bar, to 0.7% of the world's young people, but almost 2% of the world's unemployed young people. Where does it turn? The answers are here. A lot comes up at once, so you will follow my voice through this. 1996 to 2014 along the bottom axis. The blue line I'm showing you runs off the right-hand axis. That is economic growth in South Africa. The, the little peak in the middle you're familiar with already, that's 2004 to 2007. And the orange line is the unemployment rate. The only time after 1994 that South Africa has recorded a sustained decline in its unemployment rate has corresponded perfectly with the South African economy that broke through 4% and started averaging 5% economic growth. If it does not do so again, it cannot solve its unstructural unemployment problem, but I've also told you that infrastructure constraints alone mean that growth rates in excess of 3% of GDP cannot be met. You can start to see the position that the South African government has painted itself into and the scenarios that will follow shortly answer the question of how do they respond to that position. Before that, a window for you into South Africa's living standards. I'm showing you households here with home loans. The first uh, figures relate to what we call black African, black South African families. There are about 12 million of those families you can see on the orange bar. But only half a million of them, 479,000, have a home loan, an excellent indicator of middle-class status, meaning that they could access formal financial services, begin to accumulate assets. Mixed-race South Africans, Asian, Indian South Africans, and white South Africans, we will leave the two uh, middle groups alone for today's purposes. White South Africans, about uh, 1.3 million families, of which about a third have an active home loan from a financial services institution. Look at monthly expenditure levels of households and you'll see a similar picture emerge. There again in blue are your 12 million black families. Of those, 8 million in orange are spending less than 2,500 rand a month or $250 if you did the direct 
conversion. Only 660,000 are spending more than 10,000 rand, approximately $1,000 a month. A number that correlates very closely to the half a million that have home loans, especially when you consider that we have drawn these numbers out of a sample size of 12 million. Mixed race, Indian Asian, and white South Africans, about two thirds of those will spend in excess of 10,000 rand a month. This is a very small and a very brittle little middle class that has been built over the past 20 years. The takeout number, only 5.5% of black African families have the experience of spending more than the equivalent of $1,000 a month. South Africa remains a poorer country than it is often able to portray itself, itself as to the rest of the world. If you want to turn that around, you need to be able to turn this around. The problem of the skills base and what's happening in South Africa's schools. The long view is very important. So I start you in 1955, and I'm going to take you through 60 years to 2015, and we're going to measure through the apartheid era and into the democracy how many black children successfully completed high school. The number, and it is, there is a number from 1955, you're sitting at the front, you might see it, it is 500 and 55 children that completed high school. By the 1960s, not much has changed. In the 1970s, there's something stirring. The 80s, there's a bit of a pickup. The real pickup is in the last decade of apartheid. In the first decade of the democracy, the rate at which young black kids are leaving, graduating high school is slipping. We expect this year the number to be 350,000 out of a cohort of 800,000 children that should have by if everyone had graduated high school. And that is why I make the point about the changing structure of South Africa's GDP. We're becoming a post-industrial emerging market, but our skills base hasn't kept pace with us. The skills story is, is not a good one. Even if you were to survive in that blue bar and get to 2015 and graduate high school, you've nonetheless suffered from a crisis of quality in your education. We're showing you here the results of a study done on numeracy rates in South African schools by grade. From grades, we're going to look at grades one, two, three, four, five, six. We'll jump to grade nine, and then we'll jump to what we call matric, which is grade 12, the year at which you will graduate high school. The test finds that between grades one and two, 60% of children in South Africa are numerate to the required degree to graduate those classes. They graduate nonetheless, but four out of 10 children have already been left behind. Numeracy rates will crash by 2000, by grade nine children, three years before you exit high school. Only 12% of the class is found to be numerate to the required degree to be in grade nine. It will not surprise you then that only seven in a hundred South African children will graduate high school with passing their final math exam with a grade of 50% or above, and that in an emerging market high-skilled economy. For that reason, people remain and are likely to dependent on South Africa's welfare system that now pays grants to more people than there are people in employment. My colleagues have developed an excellent indicator that they call H2E2W2. It's going to appear here in a moment and it measures what proportion of the budget in South Africa is spent on free or subsidized housing, healthcare, the H's, education and electricity, welfare, so actual cash grants to households and individuals, and water services. It is 60% of government expenditure in South Africa, the massive redistribution of wealth that has happened through the tax system. State debt costs are 10%. Defence, police, transport and other. There is 
little room to expand the welfare system, especially when you look at the fiscal constraints on the government. And this is the point on South Africa not being able to spend less because spending cuts will eventually have to come out of this. And the political reaction is one I don't think the government will be able to survive. The extent of the dependency that this has bred is brought out on this graphic on the right best of all. It runs from 2001 to 2015 and measures the number of people in employment for every 100 people who receive a welfare grant from the state. In 2001, 300 people had a job for every grant recipient. 2008-9, for the first time, there are more social welfare recipients than there are people in employment. Are we becoming a safer society, people? ask the question, and it's not critical to the scenarios, but we give the answer. It's a complex answer, though. In 1994, 70 in every 100,000 South Africans was murdered. A decade later, the murder rate has fallen to 40, and it will largely stabilise into where we are today. It's a positive story, but Australia's figure in 2014 was 0.8, and yours here in the United States was five, so in many respects we remain a violent society. The complexity just of answering a question as simple as, are you safer, can be brought home when I show you on top of that this data, 2005 to 2014, armed house and business robberies in South Africa, rising from 12 to 40,000 incidents. As of the right-hand axis, the total number of criminal convictions in the country has been falling. And the reason I show you this is to make the point that many state institutions, the criminal justice system being one of them, is simply overwhelmed by the demands placed on it. And in the difficult fiscal environment we confront, it, we don't see our way out of some of these problems without, again, a growth recovery. If this is the context where we are uh, 20 years, uh, 21 years into our democracy, what do South Africans think about it? The answer comes from an opinion poll that's been conducted over much of that period by the presidency in South Africa, and it asks one question, it asks many questions, one of which is, do you agree that the government is performing well? In the year 2000, 72% of South Africans agreed with that, but government popularity has fallen almost 20 percentage points to just 54 in this year, and we think the number will fall below 50% into 2015. This is a collapse in confidence in the South African state. The collapse in confidence can be mirrored and seen and read in other indicators as well. <clears throat> Riot policemen employed in South Africa, a very good measure of how governments see their own future unfolding. Between 1995 and 2001, South Africa employed, it has a, a national, a federal, essentially, uh, policing system, 11,000 riot policemen, then about 10% of police members that did policing work in the country. Between 2002 and 6, the number of riot policemen was 7,000. Between 6 and 10, it was 2,500. South Africa was making it. We were going to become a successful democracy, and you can see, and I think it's a fantastic way of measuring that. Subsequently, the figure is at least 4,500, and we think it has probably doubled that now as well. A government that starts to hire more riot policemen again is responding to a perceived threat. Musi Maimane, who will be elected in a week or so, I have no doubt, is leader of the opposition in South Africa, who gave that address that Marion showed you, alluded to their role 
when he said of how, to the great shock of many South Africans, the riot police invaded South Africa's parliament, physically assaulted members of parliament and ejected them after they had heckled the president in his State of the Nation speech to a point that he had to interrupt the speech. The government's responding to a real threat as well, as it sees. 971 violent protests, largely directed at the government, took place in 2001. That number has more than doubled into 2014. You are seeing the beginnings of what will become a protest movement in South Africa. That collapse of political confidence and confidence in the government can be measured when you look at the formal political arena, how South Africans vote. What I'm showing you here is, is voting patterns and numbers measured not as a proportion of people who went to vote, but expressed as a proportion of people who were entitled to vote, and otherwise citizens over the age of 18, had they actually gone out and voted. In 1994, the ANC got 54% of the vote of all people entitled to vote if everyone had turned out to vote. They actually got 63% of people who went to vote and they have that number 20 years later. So it appears if you measure the voting, the election results as if ANC support is constant. But if you measure ANC support as a proportion of eligible voters, it's shedding support quickly. The official opposition, the party of Musi Maamane, has made its way from one and a half to 13% of the eligible vote. All other parties you see there in grey, the lapse of the National Party government that uh, dates back to the apartheid era and some others. But the most important political player in South Africa has not yet appeared on the graphic. It's represented by, they are, by this yellow line, the non-voter. A South African over the age of 18 entitled to vote who's choosing not to. Their numbers are now greater than the number of people voting for the ruling party and that is not for a moment a comment on voter apathy. These are highly activist young people, very politically engaged, who look around the political spectrum and say, I don't think this is for me. If half of the non-voters were to vote again and not to vote for the ruling African National Congress, the African National Congress will lose South Africa's next election, and that's a reality that is accepted in private within the party. If this is the predicament it then faced, what is it going to do? And the scenarios emerge. Obviously, you've leapt through a few months of work. We think the government and the ruling party, as it's now positioned, has two sets of choices. On economic policy, under strain, uh, seeing the, the likely uh, consequences of the approaching fiscal cliff, is it driven to reform the single-minded pursuit of economic growth in the understanding that only that growth driven by domestic and foreign investment can create the wealth to create the jobs to meet the unmet expectations and secure the political future of the government. In other words, it turns to the right. Or does it persist in the face of the evidence in the view that the socialist development state, as it calls it, can do a far better job of meeting popular expectations? While that battle plays itself out, South Africa's battle of ideas, do we remain a free and open society under the rule of law as we have largely been? Or do the types of incidents that Mr. Maimane referred to today, the shooting that Marion referred to at Marikana, do those become the norm and South Africa's democratic institutions are eroded? How the country addresses those two questions of definitive and fundamental importance to our future gives you the scenarios. Where the state insists on being the socialist development state and later heads off 
inevitable political defeat born of its inability to meet popular expectations by attacking democratic institutions, South Africa's rocky road scenario. Socialism amidst crumbling institutions, negative growth rates, capital flight, investor flight, horrific human rights abuses. The best case is the government, under pressure to the surprise of many of its critics, turns to the right. Growth rates will have to start approaching 4 to 5% of GDP, and it will win on the right-hand axis a popular mandate for reform, a mandate that's continually strengthened as the effects of reform are felt in households around the country, and there are a handful of reformers within the government who we know would like to turn this way, but they remain a minority. An intriguing case, one that the South African government finds particularly interesting, is what we call the narrow road scenario. Again, the understanding follows from the context that we're in at the moment that market-driven reforms are the only way to escape the inevitable political defeat of the African National Congress. But the state understands at the same time that winning a popular mandate for reform is unlikely with a climate of ideas in South Africa remains hostile to the idea of property rights, private enterprise and the like. They therefore force reform. And South Africa's model, again, approaches 4 or 5% growth rates degree of political stability. In a sense, you're talking about something approximating South Korea of the 1970s. The fourth outcome, and there is no fifth one, is the toll road future. The socialist development state thinking prevails. Economic performance uh, remains significantly under the country's potential. Anger born of unmet expectations escalates. We have clung to our democratic institutions, and in that future, we have no doubt, the African National Congress will lose the 2024 election, most likely. No clear winner will emerge, and South Africa will enter a new era of coalition politics. The most likely coalition is the radical Marxist left, together with the African National Congress, and by the time the African National Congress loses, we think that radical left will have uh, approached 16, 17, 18% of the vote, added to the 49% of the African National Congress gives the new regime a constitutional majority. The most probable outcome on current trends is some hybrid of the toll and the rocky roads, I think, ending in coalition politics, even if you have to push that one year ahead, in, uh, one electoral cycle ahead into 2029. For the team um, at the Institute, the centre, which is our uh, little consulting group, to come to another conclusion of, as a scenario of greatest probability. We want to see patterns such as these emerge. Economic upsurge of our major export partners coinciding with sustained uptick in global commodity demand will cause us to reconsider, is that the likelihood? Are we, is the government buying itself time to escape the fiscal consequences of low growth? Increases in foreign interest rates coinciding with sustained capital outflows out of South Africa, South African economy falls flat. Reckless short-term borrowing on the part of the government to shore up political support regardless of the consequences. The inevitable ratings downgrades will follow. South African uh, uh, bonds will likely move into junk status. Institutional investors pull out. Rand runs past 20 to the US dollar. It's, it's the rocky road future. Sharp Rand weakening together with an environment of rapidly rising oil prices that will put pay to any growth recovery. One that we 
are particularly interested in is fundamental reforms in labor market policy, a, a holy cow to emerge from the strike, from the successful defeat of the apartheid system. If the current government moves on labor market deregulation, it will tell us that they are truly interested in real reform. Other areas of economic policy reform may also follow, opening the door to either the wide or the narrow road upside scenarios. If we continue to see the loss of autonomy of democratic institutions, the downside beckons, but so too does that narrow road, that South Korea type uh, uh, scenario, where the government will appropriate to itself considerable powers and use those to force um, significant and conservative, Thatcher-style, economic policy reform. South Africa emerges as a far more prosperous country. Likely successful attempts to vest property rights in the state. There are such attempts at the moment. They have not yet been successful. It will deter investment, of course, but more serious governments that do this follow very quickly. Once you've taken property rights, individual rights will follow. Large-scale institutional instability in the ruling party, meaning it falls apart. And what I don't think we'll see, but it, it would turn our views, uh, sustained sharp increases in violent anti-government protest, meaning that the government is likely to be hounded out of power by some sort of leftist alliance that, and will then fall in with that alliance in a coalition government. We have little doubt that South Africa's future, as you will read it from here or experience it if you live in the country, will fall broadly within the confines of one of the scenarios that we have set out for you today, and Mary and I gladly take your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Franz, for that very interesting presentation. Um, I would like to point out that the Marxist group in South Africa is waiting in the wings. They are called Economic Freedom Fighters, and I just want to make sure that there is no connection between them and the Economic Freedom Fighters here at the Cato Institute, who stand for the exact opposite. Um, before turning to, to, the, to the audience for question, could you explain in just really one or two sentences um, your beef with the um, employment regulations? For, for those people who are watching on TV or who are in the audience, um, what, what's the problem with employment regulations and also agricultural private property rights? I think the, the Institute has maintained right from the time of the transition in 1994 that um, unduly heavy regulation of the South African labour market in the absence of a skills revolution will by necessity conclude in the problem of structural unemployment. And um, we've been proven right, of course, by the numbers that we see behind us. The fact of the matter, whether activists on the left in South Africa like it or not, is that in the medium term, Without significant deregulation of South Africa's labour market, we will not be able to ensure the competitiveness that is necessary to allow very large numbers of young South Africans at least the chance of a job. Labour unions in South Africa, for the most part, and there are exceptions, have become organisations that protect the employed from the unemployed. The political consequences of the rising and unmet expectations are driving the rising left and the Marxist left in South Africa. So it's not just 
a question of deregulating labour markets to achieve economic ends. If you cannot place more South Africans in a position, young people, mainly black people, the white unemployment rate compares favourably with Western Europe and the United States, to take charge of their own lives, I think that we will see a continued input of radical leftist thinking that will take South Africa deep into that uh, rocky road future. On, on property rights, we have, we have grave concerns. They, it's not just a question of, of agriculture. There are a series of uh, proposed and active uh, policies and, and regulations in the pipeline that um, undermine those rights. That stretches from uh, policy thinking that would undermine intellectual property rights and therefore uh, become a severe disadvantage to the country should it in time wish to position itself to Africa as Hong Kong is to China, some of the services hub. You're very welcome to come in and <laughs> rearrange me. Um, should it want to become the services hub, um, as it stands, there is very little chance that South Africa is going to attract the domestic or foreign capital investment, the new greenfields expansion in mining operations or agriculture and the like, as long as the rhetoric and now policy is starting to place the state in the position where it can seize property rights virtually at its will and delay the payment of compensation should any be paid in, in the longer term at all. All right, thank you very much. So uh, over to the audience, uh, please wait for the microphone to get to you. And then if you would please um, state your name, uh, who your paymaster is, and um, just uh, keep your question in form of a question. First question here. Hi, Doug Brooks with the uh, International Stability Operations Association. Great presentation, Franz, and Hello, good to see you again. Um, I wonder if you could just address the, uh, the issue of foreign workers in South Africa a little bit and, and discuss how that's impacted on the economy and how chasing them out may, may impact the economy uh, as well. Uh, absolutely, Doug. If you follow the news on South Africa, you will have seen in recent weeks xenophobic attacks on black foreign workers out of Africa. And these are nothing new. Uh, we estimate that between 350 and 500 foreign workers have been killed uh, in, in terrible circumstances, machete-wielding mobs, over the past decade. It's a function of rhetoric directed out of parts of the South African government at times even, and people closely it's people in the pay, as Marion would say, of the South African government, in this case the Zulu royal household, who portray foreigners as stealing our jobs, taking our opportunities, and even in cases stealing our women, which raises all manner of questions. It's part of something broader, though, Doug. It's, um, it's an attempt to divert attention away from the root causes of South Africa's problems to offer the seductive idea that someone else is, is stood in the way of you and a better life. And if you can take that someone else out of the picture, then your life will improve. You delay the inevitable turn of focus onto the South African government itself. It is the very same phenomena, although it's not done as brutally, as talking about the uh, negative impact of Western investors and companies in South Africa. There's been a movement in South Africa of students 
to remove any uh, uh, vestiges of Cecil John Rhodes from university campuses. It is the same thing. The idea that someone else came here and through their actions you are poor. And if you do not remove that other, you will never have the lifestyle that you aspire to. It is a very dangerous thing. And it is going to increasingly turn, I have no doubt, into a rising degree of anti-Western sentiment in South Africa as well. And Western firms and the like invested in the country are going to start seeing this thing uh, and, and, and what this heralds um, in their own companies and organisations are going to have a very difficult time uh, batting it away. If you want, why don't you appear on your own? I meant uh, you can just point. No, the thanks, Gentleman uh, with his hand up. <laughs> the, the, one in, uh, the one I'm pointing at. Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. Wonderful talk, uh, really enlightening. One scenario you've not mentioned is a possible Indonesian solution where the radical left overplays its hand and the government, uh, if, if, if driven by nothing other than self-interest, sees its future in the violent repression of the left and property rights are protected if for no other reason than the greed of a, uh, a major family or two. I think there are elements of that built into uh, what we call the narrow road, the top left scenario. The state is, in terms of economic policy, eventually forced to the right. It has to grow its way out of trouble, it has to maintain a vestige of property rights and the like, otherwise we'll get nowhere. And it tolerates no dissent at all. Are we already on the way there? That attack in Parliament on members of Parliament was on the Marxist radical left. Um, the, the, uh, a move within the ruling party, I think, to undermine the effectiveness of trade unions by uh, isolating the very charismatic leader of the Congress of South Africa's trade unions may be a move in that direction. We certainly see reformers within the government and the ruling party, people that would surprise some of their critics, who, if push comes to shove, will move in that direction. Our trouble is that the climate of ideas is very hostile to the type of private sector-led investment-driven growth, uh, the maintenance of property rights that is necessary to get there. I therefore think the reformers are more likely to fall short. The scenarios that then emerge is continuing economic decline and an overt move to try and undermine democratic institutions in the country. There was a gentleman just to your left. Yes, you, sir. David Cherry with the Executive Intelligence Review. I have a simple question and maybe one. <laughs> uh, the first is... Uh, is the mic on? Here? Like this, okay. <laughs> um, you, you projected the, uh, what you thought might be the most likely coalition government which could come in in 2024, but I didn't, didn't understand clearly who the participants were. There, there are essentially four players in the political space at the moment. There's the African National Congress, yes. which has about 40% of the vote of potential voters, 60% of the actual vote. So they play a number one. The second player is the largely liberal or classically liberal, although 
these things aren't always clear, um, opposition in South Africa. Um, they're sitting at about, um, let's talk about the actual vote. The ANC's got about 60. The liberal opposition is sitting at around 25 or so. And the Marxist left is sitting at about seven. And there are a few other rats and mice parties that fit into it. The likely coalition for me is that the ANC loses its absolute majority. So it loses another 10 or 11 percentage points. It moves to just below 50. That is attrition both from the Marxist left and from the liberal right of the party. If through that process of attrition, the young Marxists can gather another 10 percentage points, then the likely coalition is former African National Congress with former young Marxists. And that actually completes a circle because the young Marxist left is the former youth wing of the African National Congress that was expelled from the party recently in the hope that, like other splinters that have gone before it, it would find life in the wilderness very difficult. It has thrived through some marketing genius and um, the exploitation of the unmet expectations of a lot of young people. So I think the ANC goes below 50 the likely partner is the um, radical left. Together, they have a constitutional majority, which is something the ANC hasn't had since 2004. I see. Um, the other, the other question, if I may, um, it was, was a big one. <laughs> Namely, what? I, mean, I, I was very surprised that in your scenarios, you did not include the factor of the BRICS Alliance of Nations. What, what BRICS means to, to me is vast increases in uh, infrastructure de development. Now, uh, if you factor in South Africa not only being a member of BRICS, but the BRICS bank coming into effect in a matter of months, um, uh, and Africa being somewhat of a priority for BRICS as I understand it, then how does that affect this picture? I think uh, South Africa is the briquette. If the, if the BRICS, South Africa is the briquette. It's relatively, in per capita terms, it, 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 uh, it looks like a brick. In absolute terms, it's somewhat insignificant. Um, I, I do think that plays into it. I think a lot of what plays into South Africa moving, especially into the narrow road scenario, is um, diplomatic pressure of sorts out of China that sees the enormous advantage to themselves in changing what would otherwise be a formative precedent, shaping the evolution of high-growth economies across the continent. In that narrow road scenario, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act here would be a headache for any firm wanting to do business in South Africa or in the rest of the continent, leaving the Chinese with an unassailable advantage. And I think of the BRICS... An unassailable advantage in the battle for a future Africa. Now, Africa is starting to look pretty impressive. If you do 20, 30 year projections on it, it's consumer markets alone before you even get to anything else, can drive a future recovery. So I think that's the case. There was the lady in front of you, and then the very eager gentleman. I do see your hand. I'll have you next. The lady in front of me, please. Uh, that's you, madam. Yes. My name's Lia. I would like to know for the economic development. Currently, there's a fashion about public-private partnership, and which, if it works in the normal, moral way, it probably is okay. But the problem now is whether there's capitalism everywhere in the world is misleading. 
is terrible. And uh, according to Africa development, there's a tendency say public debt is equivalent to profit over people. So people don't have water, people don't have really social welfare. Even in America, the welfare benefit usually is deprived. They don't really receive it. So I just wonder if you can explain a little bit more how are they going to use a public-private partnership or they are going to say, forget it, we want to do for the best interest of the general public. I, I think one point you cannot escape on South Africa is that in in the absence of significantly high levels of investment that must be driven out of the private sector, where will the capital come from to ensure a growth recovery? Public-private partnerships are a popular fad. Um, they very often simply open the door to a corrupt relationship between big business and big government. And, and I think to a significant extent, if South Africa is going to reach 5% growth rates, it will be because the private sector had the door open to it and an enabling investment environment was created. The gentleman at the back, yes, you, sir. I then see one, two, three hands. Yes, sir. Thank you. My name is Akio Jolong, uh, a mineral resources consultant firm. You've made a very, very good presentation of what are the factors affecting the decline in the economic growth of South Africa. But when one listens to it, it is a, collect, a collection of shortcomings in South Africa economic planning and, and specific economic factors worldwide. Now, maybe I got you wrong, but I got the impression that it seems you are more concerned about ANC being at fault and something else should take over. Assuming that is right, suppose ANC loses an election and a new government comes in the way you want it. What are the specific actions you will recommend to that new government to reverse the, the growth of uh, the, the, the decline in economic growth? And particularly, what are three specific things they should do? And what sort of time frame will you advise such a government before they see any positive response in economic growth in South Africa? My, my first point to you is that with a close on two-thirds electoral majority for 20 years, I think that it is only right that if there are shortcomings in South Africa, we take a very close look at the behaviour of its government. To, uh, I don't think it's accurate to suggest that um, we are uh, pushing for the collapse of that government. If anything else, we fear that if it only loses its majority by one or two percentage points, we end up in a worse situation where the Marxists get back in again. Um, that said, we will back any um, party... Of, uh, in the broadest sense, that is willing to embrace the reforms necessary to turn South Africa around. Specifically, what needs to be done? First point, and I, I won't talk generally, I think that's pointless, is introduce a model adapted to South Africa of a charter school system for the country. School vouchers allow parents' choice over the education that their children get. There are governments that can run very good school systems. Our government is not going to be one of those. And if you cannot break the skills deadlock, you cannot exploit our natural strength as a services economy. Uh, 
The second step that a future government must follow, significant labour market deregulation. Scrapping of the minimum wage, a right to work clause in the South African constitution and scrapping of the horizontal application of bargaining council agreements. The third step is scrap all race-based affirmative action policies and black economic empowerment policies in the country. They are simply a breeding ground for corruption and incompetence and in and a unnecessary obstacle to investor-led growth. Those would be our, that would be our advice. Are there political takers that will, that will accept that? I think time will tell. I, um, let me move on to, I see a number of hands, so if you excuse me, I'm going to try and deal with as many as I can. The gentleman right in front of me. Tony Carroll, I teach at Johns Hopkins, and I'm also Vice President of Manchester Trade. Um, last week you spoke about um, trying to generate uh, the attention and interest of those uh, sectors within the South African government uh, that are actually uh, competent and who may be drawn to more persuasive arguments about good governance. Um, and lastly, just let me say as a comment, you know, I was in South Africa before the end of apartheid, and uh, this government inherited a mess. It was a state of society, a society that it was exclusionary and highly inefficient. Um, you know, maybe things haven't gotten any better, but they certainly were very bad when they took over. So I'm not sure you make enough uh, comment or reflection upon that, but that's just a comment. I'm more concerned about the issue of trying to generate and engage those elements of the government that offer some coherence and, and, and willingness to engage. You know, there are, there are advantages in the fiscal deficit because it means that um, moderates within the government and reform-minded members are now more focused on getting out of trouble than they would. It, it focuses the collective imagination. The prospect of a, a young, uh, precisely, of a young a Marxist party in uh, red berets, your colours at Cato, they'd approve of Marion... Uh, <laughs> They, uh, they think you did it just for them if you get them to speak one day. The prospect of that is focused, and we're seeing as a think tank, as an independent, privately financed group, more positive interaction with elements of the ruling party in the South African government than we've had at any point in the last 20 years. Of, of course it's true to say that South Africa is a better place than it was at the end of apartheid. Um, we've made that point repeatedly to, to the point that we've drawn the ire of the official opposition. Um, and I think in the mid-2000s, it appeared as if that was going to be our trajectory. But the confluence of the global financial crisis and the effective palace coup of the left retaking, taking back the policy-forming function in the South African government means that we are a country that is now significantly underperforming in terms of our potential. The gentleman on the extreme, my extreme left, yes, sir. Hi, uh, Pat Spann, just myself. The, um, I didn't, um, I was hoping to see a chart that would show the, um, um, both the uh, capital and the human capital people uh, leaving the country. I get the sense that, um, I mean, I, can you go back after talking like you just did? I mean, the, uh, I'm wondering, what is the um, um, reverse immigration? Of, especially of uh, skilled people and, uh, and also taking their capital with them. We're aware of a significant skills outflow. You don't see that in official population statistics, 
but it becomes very clear when you look at the age structure of the middle classes. There's obviously a very big gap, it looks like an hourglass, very big gap in the middle. And that hourglass image is, is reflected again in South Africans that would have been the children of middle class parents who are not being born in the country anymore. So unless that, these aren't just steep-sided demographic pyramids, these are, these are moving inwards. And if, unless the middle classes have stopped having children completely, those children are born overseas. So I think we've seen that. The global financial crisis put the brakes on, but we warned at the time it is a pattern that will resume if domestic policy in the country remains hostile. Much of the middle class, as the graphics I showed you indicated, remains white South Africa. If the, the point of, of, of Doug Brooks, if, uh, if the racial nationalist sentiment that attacks the foreign, poor foreign migrants that see Cecil John Rhodes' statue removed from the University of Cape Town. If that turns, I don't think it will turn in a violent manner on the white middle classes. I must be very clear on that so that this isn't, that is not attributed to me. I don't think it will be, the, if it was, I would have said so. I think that as pressure is brought to bear on that group, they will increasingly seek to leave. Our estimates are that half of South Africa's white middle classes have foreign residence rights if they choose to exercise those rights. You, you say, why are we there? Um, you know, every individual will have to talk for themselves, but, but certainly I think my colleagues and, and, and many others um, want it to be a success and want to be an influence in allowing it to be successful. Because while it's turning against us, those upside scenarios remain within reach for South Africa. And we're not going to die wondering what would have happened had we as a think tank not committed every resource we possibly had to reform. Um, if it's going to go down, then it's going to go down in, in a fight. And unfortunately, the trends are starting to turn against us. The gentleman, on, uh, the gentleman I'm pointing at on the... Thank you. Um, I'm Peter Justin. I'm the CEO of a company called Five Plus. We focus on growing entrepreneurship economies. In fact, we're in discussions with the government of South Africa on how to do just that. So I'm curious, as I look in statistics on emerging growth economies around the world, they often mirror U.S. statistics. Two-thirds net new job creation, 50% of the GDP, et cetera, 68% of employment, all driven by entrepreneurship and small business. And I wondered what your thoughts were, how that would impact your uh, growth curves. Well. Well, there's no doubt that if South Africa is to beat its unemployment crisis, that job creation is, is not going to be out of large foreign or domestic investors or job creators. That's going to, that burden is going to have to be borne to a very great extent by communities themselves. Now, South Africa statistics are interesting. We have levels of emerging entrepreneurship. So someone is trying a startup that compare with the BRICS, as, as an example. But our levels of established entrepreneurship compare with uh, Russia, the former Soviet Union. What's happening there? It's that the impetus is there to get going. But when you run into the regulatory wall that the South African government represents, um, no small businessman can possibly hope to make it. And that um, to drive entrepreneurship, which might have been the fourth piece of advice I'd give to future South African government, what we need to do is remove the dead hand of the South African state. We actually need to establish a ministry 
that is responsible for going to see other cabinet ministers and saying, are you aware that you have 200 laws on the statute books and which of those do you really need? And if you aren't able, and otherwise you repeal and you scrap them. Massive deregulation of the, of the investment space is necessary. We know that those foreign immigrants that are being attacked are young entrepreneurs. The advantage they have over their South African colleagues is not that they're better educated or come from more peaceful climes or arrive with lots of capital. The one advantage is that they, by their very illegal status, they're not subject to the many laws and regulations of the South African government. And we need to give that freedom to more poor South Africans as well. France, make it uh, the last two questions. I, I have two more questions. I've, I've seen two very... Um, <laughs> Marion, I've seen two very persistent hands right at the back. The gentleman first on my left and then the one uh, somewhat in front of me. I'm, I, will, I will be available here. I'll, I'll try and be available here for half an hour after this meeting. Okay. Okay. Let me just let, take those two who have identified. If Marion will permit me, I will, I will take one more from the right. Yes. My, my name is Samar Chatterjee. I'm on my own payroll, uh, just to make that clear. Um, uh, now, since you've painted a very dismal picture of South Africa, and you keep saying with one or two percent change it could get the leftist in, why not go to pick the China model and start all over again, get their own Mao and build through that, and then they will have their Xi Jinping and all that, and come through a China uh, miracle that we see today. So that's why a, not is, go through that model? That is my narrow road scenario. That, that is your very narrow road. The narrow road scenario. The reason, it would leave South Africa economically better off, but the basic rights and freedoms that the country struggled for, for certainly through the apartheid era, would disappear with that. The, there was a question. Uh, uh, yes, you, sir. Hello, my name is Kyle Gibson. I'm with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce through African Affairs Department and a former uh, Cato Institute intern in the Trade Policy Department. Um, I want to touch briefly going back to the broad-based economic uh, empowerment codes. So, you know, you have the narrative of high unemployment rates, you have dropping commodity prices, and you have many African governments, um, you know, continually trying to diversify their economies. With that, you, we see a rising trend in localization uh, policies across the African continent. In South Africa, it's the broad-based economic empowerment codes. Uh, with the ways this is trending, not only in South Africa, but across the entire African continent, where, what is your opinion on uh, future outlook for foreign direct investment, especially from um, you know, the U.S. and other Western countries, as well as um, you know, national economic development, if there's any... Uh, Influence. I'm, I'm um, weakened, of course, by the fact that we're now talking about 55 countries, each with their own sets of policies and outlook. As a, as a short answer, north of the Limpopo, Africa's starting to look pretty good. Zimbabwe's been an exception. There are other exceptions. But considering where the continent was and where it's going, we will not again see um, the economist of 12 years ago, the hopeless continent, front page. I, I, I do like your question, though, because um, you're touching on something that, that I haven't seen many uh, analysts outside of South Africa identify, 
and that is the importance of ensuring that the formative precedent in South Africa is the right one. It's an influential precedent for the rest of Africa's development. It was the great democratic experiment. And the precedent that shaped in South Africa, I think, will be definitive to how other African economies, not, not that we South Africans, we can learn enormous amount. More now, I think, we could learn from East, Asia, East Africa in terms of attracting investment, and they could certainly learn from us. They could learn from us how not to do it. Um, but the danger is very much, as wealth starts being created, that the political elite will sort to extract that wealth for themselves through what Mugabe calls an indigenization policy, through what the South Africans call an empowerment policy. Um, it is simply that, a means to allow very big government and very big business to work together in a quasi-corrupt fashion um, to secure short-term economic goals for the investor in question and uh, personal um, economic goals for the government and its supporters. Uh, should other countries start to move towards that model, I think it bodes ill for Western investment, particularly because of the implications of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. A criticism we often have of, of, of the US State Department is that on the one hand, you have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. On the other hand, your, your investors in Africa run the risk of being exposed to governments that increasingly uh, become less democratic, more authoritarian. And there's not enough of an effort to create an environment that would be conducive to long-term Western investment. The winner, all of this, ultimately remains China's view on Africa. The last uh, gentleman today, uh, you, sir. Thank you. My name is Yaya Fanusi. I'm with United States of Africa 2017 Project. A message for you and the South African people. Tell Zuma to stop interfering with us creating the federation. That is the only way you're going to survive as an economic entity. If you don't be part of this federation, the status that South Africa or Nigeria or Ethiopia or Egypt will attain is that of Mexico 40 years ago. So you need to join the federation. Take that message to the people. And it's private sector driven. The, the federation is geared to what Cato stands for. Limited interference of the stupid governing class. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mary. Thank you very much.